I wanted to ask, um, get some sense of why you, you all came. And I wanted to say, ask a couple questions. And, and first is, how, how many of you um, have ever said the word I in a piece? Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. And how many have um, used something that happened to you and your reaction to it or your involvement in it in a piece? That's a lot. And how many have actually, when you're in the field, held the mic up to yourself and and talked and sort of okay so we don't even need to do this you're all you're all bros you're all better than did you bring tape because i'd like to hear your pieces <laughs> um well for those of you who didn't raise your hand um the last question is how many people talk to themselves out loud because i actually think that is a great thing and I don't know if it's... I'd like to sort of do a study and see how many radio people do that because I think it's a disproportionate number. But I think that's a really, that, that's a really great starting point for people who, who want to put themselves in the piece um, and are nervous about it. And for those of you who do it and feel really self-conscious or um, just want to think of um, ways to improve is to think about um, talking to yourself. I mean, I talk to myself all the time and, and usually out loud. And uh, when, I'm, when I'm out there and I'm feeling uncomfortable about doing this kind of thing, which is still very new to me, um, which is probably good that I'm giving this session because I'm still sort of a guinea pig in all this, that's what I sort of think about is, um, well, God, Betsy, talk to yourself all the time. Just kind of do it and, and lose the actor uh, side of things. Uh, anyway, I don't know if anybody knows who I am. I'm a reporter and correspondent, and I've worked for NPR for way too long, and um, did at least two decades worth of uh, really boring uh, acts, tracks, and sometimes ambi uh, kinds of stories, you know, and it, it, it starts to get really formulaic, as you know, if you listen to the radio, and as you know, if you do these kinds of pieces, in fact, you start to look at your script, and... Um, it looks really formulaic, and you go, oh, oh, it should be the, it should be a box and a line and a box and a line, and oh, that's a little too long. Oh, you know, I mean, it, it just gets really. Um, I think having done it for so long, um, fun stuff started creeping into my stories, and that's when I started thinking about doing more um, of this kind of thing, which is putting yourself in the piece. Um, and so I, I, um, I can't see, so I'll look at my notes here, but, uh, like I said, um, I did a bunch of White House stuff, congressional stuff, you know, the typical President Bush said this today and, you know, President Clinton did that and blah, 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 extracts. Um, and then I started doing a bunch of environmental stuff and that started to sound really boring and the same as well. Um, and I just, um started doing these radio expeditions where um, they spent a lot of money sending me someplace really cool, and um, yet it was still yet another environmental story, which can get, they can get pretty cliche and pretty boring. And um, stuff started creeping into my, my work that I thought was more interesting than the story itself, like just a reaction to something happening or a really dumb question or um, my own fear about something like snakes. Um, and I would hear the piece, and it, you know, it'd be an eight and a half minute piece. And my favorite part of the piece would be my stupid question or my fear of snakes. 
And I thought, you know, there's really something to this. Um, but uh, I never really got a chance to explore it much because, um, probably shouldn't say this, but, um, you know, at NPR, we had this rule that uh, for a long time that you just, you never put yourself in the piece or you never say I. And slowly that's changed, but um, it was sort of like taboo. Um, they come up with these rules every once in a while. I'm sure people here who work for NPR know this, like never start a piece with ambience, no matter what. And never end a piece with an actuality, no matter what, you know, and you can't break those rules. But um, I don't work for NPR anymore. I, um, I'm a freelancer. I mean, I still do stuff for them, um, and, and I love them dearly when the paychecks come. But um, I, start, I, I got an opportunity a year ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, to do some stuff for Jay Allison. And um, he um, was working on a pilot for the, the, the stories from the heart of the land. I don't know if any people have heard some of these, but they were doing a pilot. And um, he said, you know, why don't you go down to this place and, and check it out and see what you think. And it's this place called the Great Bear Rainforest. Um, or it's not really called that. The environmentalists call that. They want it to be called that. And it was, you know, classic and, and classic environmental story. Um, but Jay said... You know, just go down and you know, just just tell me what it's like. You know, just do you know, just do the you know, little first person narrative thing. And I'd never really um, tried it. I, I had tried it a bit, but um, anyway, I went down there and um, did this little piece. And I wanted to start with it because then I wanted to back up and sh sort of show you how this kind of evolved. So I'm going to try and play this for you. And I apologize for. Um, the preamble, but play. We start with Elizabeth Arnold, a former White House reporter, now based in Alaska, standing by a river with a tape recorder. She is alone. Well, not exactly alone. I'm in this place that um, some people want to call the Great Bear Rainforest. And there are lots of bears around, <laughs> lots of bears. I'm standing on a riverbank here, and it stinks. The smell is just overwhelming of dead salmon. Um, there's a bear about 20 feet from me, uh, pretty intent on fishing, but I'm starting to back up. Okay, there's a huge grizzly bear. It just came out of nowhere. And I'm really hoping. Oh God, it's right there. Okay. I'm not gonna move. God, where did he come from? God, he's coming this way. I think I'm at a safer distance now, but who the hell knows in a place like this? You know, and that's the thing about wild places is you get lulled into, you know, the cliche part of it all where the bald eagles are above you and the snow-capped mountains are all around you and, and then <laughs> something like that happens and it's just, it's wild. 
that's the part of it that makes it so special. Jesus. I see you're all laughing because I'm alive. <laughs> and this gets to the point of self-deprecation. I live in Alaska, okay, and um, I took a lot of heat, I mean a lot of grief for that because, you know, one of the rules about bears is, well, the main rule is you don't run, right? You just don't run. In fact, I think I, think, I, think I said that on tape. And, and then you hear me running <laughs> and the tape recorder and the bad mic handling and everything else. But, I mean, it's a, it's a nice piece of tape and it kind of told you um, in a way that was very embarrassing for me um, what this place is really like and what somebody like me feels like in a place like that. Um, and it took sort of uh, Jay Allison and some people to say, you know, this is, you, you really should use this. And um, uh, I don't think I would ever have thought about going down there and doing that piece. I thought I was going to go down there and, um, I don't know, talk about how beautiful it is and, you know, the bears and blah, blah, blah. But um, something else happened. And um, I think that's what's really neat about these stand-ups and trying to do these stand-ups because you never really know um, what will happen, and, and it makes for, it makes for, I think, more intimate um, radio, um, much more live radio, and um, more compelling radio, I, I think. Um, but the, the line, the, the difficult part of it, as, as, as some of you might know, is, is that um, you don't want it to sound all stagey and um, actorish and um, fake, and I mean, the key to it is is being real and honest. And sometimes that's hard to do when you're thinking about how it's going to sound. Um, and I guess I, I talked through this, um, you know, my own fears and my own stupidity and my own um, dumb questions and my own enthusiasm and anger sometimes. Um, a piece um, that I did in Mongolia, I was just furious after being in this jeep for days with these guys who didn't know where they were going and they kept stopping and playing cards and drinking and you know I just got out and just vented into my tape recorder and it was pretty compelling tape <laughs> fortunately they're not going to hear it in Mongolia um a boredom you know boredom is 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 wonderful or scientists I've I've dealt with you know what sci scientists who just cannot boil anything down to a simple sentence and instead of um sort of trying to do it for them just asking point blank um this or saying it to the to your own microphone as you're interviewing this person i have no idea what you just said you know and they're so sort of stunned that you just did that that sometimes that stuns them into actually making some sense out of something um Anyway, it took me a while to get to where I was able to do that, um, which isn't much, but um, for me it was to be able to just um, talk uh, to my own microphone. Um, but as I said earlier, it, it sort of evolved because I started thinking that the pieces that were the most compelling, and this, the little parts of my stories that were most compelling were um, those kinds of moments. And sometimes it's not even you saying anything on tape. It's you sort of reacting. Um, I had to do a water story uh, in the West, and uh, it was really a sort of boring story about the history of water rights. 
Um, and I was going with this guy in his, his Jeep to go look at um, a ditch and um, I don't know, it was sort of boring. And the story was already too long and it was too long-winded and it was boring. And it was going to take me forever to sort of describe where we were going. And, and um, I, I'm, I was rolling tape in the car so that I'd have the jumble, jumble, jumble of the you know, rocky road. And we got to the place where we were going to get out. And he said, um, oh, yeah, I should tell you, uh, there's snakes, so be careful. And I kind of went, huh. I didn't say anything. You don't hear it on tape. But I visibly, to him, went you know, freaked out because I'm re- deathly afraid of snakes. Not bears, but snakes. And um, he said, did I say something wrong? And it, it's just this great moment where in about four seconds, you know what the place looks like, feels like. It's snaky, icky country, you know? And, and it's because of my reaction, even though I didn't say anything. And it's just there. And uh, I wish I had the tape to play for you, but... Um, I, I had to fight a little bit with my editor to, to keep it in, but it, it, it saved me three paragraphs of description. And, you know, it's my favorite part of the whole piece because it's, it's real or, I don't know, you just, you just feel it. And uh, it's those kinds of moments, I think, that more and more people are, are willing to put in their pieces and, and make, it, make them really come alive. Um, another really dumb example, and that's why I'm giving them because I think there's the obvious... I mean, I come from this, from a journalistic background, so you know, it's one thing to sort of be Garrison Keillor or Ira or somebody and sort of write your, a story and then go on, but it's another thing to be in the field trying to tell a story, something that's actually really happening that's news or, or it's supposed to be information and yet still inject your own persona into that. Um, but another really dumb example, I had to cover the Olympics and... Uh, they made me do a story on ski wax. <laughs> and I did this story, and it just, I mean, I ski, and I, I sort of understand um, the importance of ski wax, but I was trying to make that clear to millions of Americans and who didn't care, who, who really wanted to know more about figure skating. But um, at the end of the piece, I was out there skiing along, and um, I actually had the wrong wax on at one point. And so, and I... My mic was on because I I taped it to my my parka and um, I I don't know if I said shit or or oh man or just some you know just it was clear that I had the wrong wax on you know it was just like I stopped but it wasn't the movement of stopping it was my oh god moment of having the wrong wax is another it's the best part of the piece I mean you could you could just play that and that's all you need to know about ski wax. Um, so as I said, these things started creeping more and more into my, uh, stories, um, and I, I, I'm going to play this piece, part of a piece, so you don't have to hear the whole thing, um, in Sri Lanka, and I, um, I had to go to Sri Lanka after the tsunami, um, and I'm not so sure you'll even hear me, um, but for me, this is one of the very first times I sort of allowed myself to be in the piece. And it's very, very slight, but um, that is sort of my starting point. So I'm just going to play it for you and see if you think it adds or detracts or whatever from it. And we can talk about it later. Also, I, I'm just going to talk a little bit, play some tape, and then I'd much rather answer your questions or hear your comments about the, the whole topic. Because I'm still... I'm still... Um, I'm 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 still 
not sure how I feel about it all, ethic ethically and, and uh, journalistically. So anyway, I'll play this if I can cue it up. It's first light in Sri Lanka's Yala National Park. We're camped in a patch of jungle open just for us so we can reach an otherwise inaccessible stretch of coastline through a tangle of banyan and palu trees. Yala is known for its leopards, elephants, and water buffalo, and our tracker, a thin man in a blue sarong, shakes his head warily when we abandon the jeep and set off on foot. Our aim is to reach the coast and document tsunami damage along the way, but we don't get far before scientists and serious birders, Sanjan Muthulingam and Tim Boucher, spot a bright yellow bird. On that big tree? Yeah. It landed. Oh, Dad, it's a kingfish. Oh, Jesus Christ. <gasps> it's the Indian fitter. I'm not kidding you. Where are you looking at? No. Okay, see the big tree? Yeah. Okay, there's two branches going across like this on the tree in front of it. They just moved. It's about 40 meters, 30 meters. Oh my meters. God, you're right. It's the Indian fitter. That yeah. is awesome. That was very close. Okay. That was very, very, very close. But even with one Indian pitta and one angry Asian elephant under our belts, we're still no closer to the coast, and there's little that's rapid about today's assessment. The tracker warns against any more walking. Okay, that didn't really translate well because it wasn't a very good recording, but um, my point in playing that was um, this time they told me that I should have run instead of... <laughs> you know, elephants, bears are very different. No, um, I just that was one of my earlier, earlier NPR stories, and, you know, it was sort of like, here we are in the woods, typical, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, just that tiny little moment there where... I said a few things, that I allowed myself to say a few things, that's how it sort of started. I'm not saying, you know, wasn't that great. I just kind of wanted to give you some sense of how slowly it's evolved for me because it's very, um, it feels self-indulgent and it feels um, self-involved and it feels very self-conscious. And um, But I imagine um, if a bunch of you have already been doing this kind of thing, it, it doesn't quite feel so badly to you, but it, it does to me. And it took me a while to actually go from just allowing myself to react instead of just being quiet all the time to actually thinking about a piece when I was going out and thinking, you know, I'm going to try to do a stand-up. I'm going to try and talk into the mic about um, what 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 this place is or or. For me, um, you have to have a reason to do this, and that's sort of the rule. Um, just like including a question in a piece, it's like if it's just so that you sound smart or um, inquisitive, it, to me it doesn't really add anything to the story. But if the question itself adds something to the story, I think that's great. And I guess I feel that way about um, these stand-ups as well. And, and sometimes, um, often for me, I'm sent to a place um, that doesn't have any sound, um, but it is an incredibly um, important place or a beautiful place or, or whatever, and um, there's no people to really talk about that either. Um, I was asked to do a story about um, for the anniversary of the Wilderness Act, and um, I went to the 
one of the most remote places in Alaska, um, in Gates of the Arctic National Park, and even the superintendent of the park um, wouldn't allow me to say where it was on the air because he didn't want, you know, millions of people coming. Um, and I knew it was going to be really quiet. And I knew that he wasn't going to do much talking because he was um, not a particularly talkative guy. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to uh, make it work. And as I said this morning, when when um, your employer pays you you know travel money to go to some spectacular place, they really want something spectacular when you come back. So I sort of knew this going in, and I started thinking, okay, well, what can I do? How can I make this work? And one of the things um, when you get dropped someplace is um, the feeling of being overwhelmed by the vastness of um, wilderness, and I wanted to get to that. So I did my very first stand-up, and I did uh, I did it. I only had one. I only had one chance to do it. I only had one chance to do it. Um, so you'll hear in this piece. And so I sort of gradually evolved to this point where I could just try to do a stand-up in the field. So I'll play that. National Park. About all I can tell you is we're a hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle in a small floatplain, and we're landing on an unnamed lake in an unnamed pass on the Continental Divide. We're somewhere in eight and a half million acres of designated wilderness. And just flying in has been eventful, even for the pilot. Seconds before landing, we watched open-mouthed as a grizzly bear took down a caribou below us. That was cool. He chased that caribou right down that hill and killed him at the bottom. We can offload right off the front of the float here. We pile our gear, sleeping bags, tents, cook stoves, freeze-dried food, and bear spray on a gravel beach edging the lake, surrounded by damp, spongy tundra that sweeps up and into an endless march of mountains in all directions. We can camp anywhere. Well, Let's get the binoculars out, take a good look camp. around here, see what we got. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping there'll be a little flat ledge up, up there. Here. We're led by Dave Mills, the superintendent of this place, and even he's never been here before. I'll tell you what, Dave, could you just give a little pushback? With a shove, the float plane taxis to the far end of the lake, where a pair of red-throated loons watches with alarm. You know, there's this feeling that you get when, when you're dropped into someplace big, someplace vast and wild, raw. And it hits you first, and it hits you hardest when the sound of that plane just starts to fade, and then it's gone. So that's just part of that piece, but um, that was the first time I ever really tried doing that. And for me, when I do go to places like that, that that's the most powerful moment, um, and I wanted to get that on tape. Uh, I was just thinking that when I listened to it, um, later I should have let it go, because um, later in the story, the superintendent, um, he gets the maps out, and he, <laughs> he doesn't know where we are. And, and I say... I can't believe you're the superintendent of the park and you don't even know where we are. I mean, it's really a, 
And uh, I ended up using that in the piece, too. So um, it was a big, bold step for me. Um, I feel like I'm sharing my... Anyway. Um, for me, as I said, I'm sort of conflicted about, about doing these things. And I, and, um, I think it's very important um, to know when not to be in the piece and when to let the people or the action or whatever happen. And um, I think all too often we insert ourselves or, or try to make things happen. And so it's sort of important to know when to shut up um, as well as when to do these kinds of things. And, and I'm still sort of assessing that out. Um, I don't know if it helps anyone, but for me, um, doing these kinds of things, it, it's uh, really important not to have a script. If, if I would write these things out, um, and I've tried it, believe me, I've tried it, um, it just doesn't sound right. I mean, even if, even if, even if I just do bullets, you know, um, so that I sound smart, um, it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't translate. I think the stuff that really translates is, is honest, and um, it's just it's, it's coming from you. Um, I tried to do um, many takes, um, do a lot of takes, um, and if it's not working, I just kind of laugh at myself and you know, call myself an idiot on tape and, and kind of get over it and try something else. Um, and I make a fool out of myself um, doing it. It's embarrassing, um, but it's, it's working, um, I think. Um, and I think it's important uh, to not be smart. Um, I think one of the things I learned when I first started in radio is that the hardest thing to do is not be the smart guy and tell everybody everything you know about the subject. And I think it's uh, in these instances, uh, if you're just... Um, trying to react to a place that you're at or react to a person, um, it's, it's almost, um, it's just better to be sort of a blank slate and just let it happen. Um, I don't listen back to any of it when I'm in the field. I think that's, uh, that would be really nightmarish because I think I would try to like perfect things or, you know, set something up or, um, and um, another really important thing I've learned is um, when you do go back to wherever your your studio or whatever, um, let somebody else listen, because um, it's still for me it's really self conscious, and I think, oh my god, you know, you're so self involved. I can't believe you're, you know, who would even want to listen to this? It's like inside Elizabeth's head. Um, so it's really good to let somebody else make that call. Um, I've been working with uh, Emily Botine, and uh, sh she's been really great about that. Um, and in the last piece that I'm going to play for you, the North Pole, I didn't really, I just kind of wanted to have a few little stand-ups like in that piece. Um, and, and it turned out to be all about me. And that was hard. Um, and I would never have made that decision. So it's really good to have somebody else say, oh, my God, that's, you know, that's, gr that's a great moment. Uh, um, my mother uh, hates these things. And I think the reason she does is she doesn't think I sound smart or articulate. And, but I think that that's the beauty of it because it's, it's just much more, um, it's, it's just more honest and, and more compelling. Um, I have some other rules, but I can talk to you about them later. So I'm just going to play this last piece for you. Oh, I, well, I'll play this last piece for you. It's a little bit longer, very self-indulgent. Um, and I, I think, you know, it might be way over the top. Um, so I'd be interested to know what you guys think. Elizabeth Arnold has been to the poll before, eight years ago. 
And when another opportunity came up, she said sure. Well, sort of. I swore I'd never go back. I remember walking circles around my tent and crying myself to sleep in the cold and the um, my eyelashes freezing together. But uh, here I am, I'm getting ready to get on a Russian plane headed for the North Pole. And uh, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> we fly for hours above a continent-sized jigsaw of fractured ice. Splinters of open leads reveal the blackness of the Arctic Ocean below. We're told the makeshift runway on the ice where we're headed is cracked. No one's sure what'll happen when we land. But it holds and we arrive at Camp Borneo, about 60 miles from the pole. And it's this really strange, temporary floating ice camp. A couple of big blue tents and a bunch of vodka-drinking Russians. Like Victor Boryaski, who's crossed Antarctica by dog sled and skied the pole too many times to count. He presides over Borneo. His concerns today include the cracked runway, two tents that need to be moved due to shifting ice, and a bulldozer which went through the ice trying to clear the new runway. But he says there's no place he'd rather be because it's always changing and, and it's never the same. North Pole is different. North Pole is the same. Hundreds of miles around the same. Boryaski says because there's no landmark, the North Pole has to be inside you. His friend, Jean-Louis Etienne, an elderly Frenchman, agrees. You feel like you are at home, and you have a place on Earth where you feel strong, where you feel as it's your identity, that you feel as a part of yourself. I wasn't feeling strong just yet. I was just trying not to feel cold. I've got everything I brought on, everything. Seven pairs of socks, and I have more down than a flock of ducks. Anyway, I'm standing in these big boots that are rated 140 degrees below. It's probably about 40 below right now. My feet are cold. But I had the same boots on as Borge Ausland, who I met on the way up. He's the first man to reach the North Pole alone, totally unsupported. He's since done it in winter, in complete darkness. It's a mental thing. It's the mental thing of standing on the top of the world when I'm up there. I feel small, and I think it's good to feel small. We can build skyscrapers or we can go to the space, but nothing can beat nature. A trip to the pole is just a kind of meditation for me. It's a philosophy. This is only my second trip, so I'm not exactly philosophical at this point. In fact, I'm more focused on whether I'm even going to make it. And that sort of triggers this weird sense of um, survival that I've been having. Like I'm hungry for things I normally wouldn't eat. And I probably shouldn't say this, but I I saw this chocolate bar. And um, I took it. (laughs) It wasn't mine. You know, I don't even like chocolate. After a couple more days there in camp, the weather got better enough to get us closer. And on the way, we stopped to resupply these two explorers who'd been on the ice for two months. Len Hubert and Dixie Danziker. And the day before, they'd reached the pole from the northern coast of Siberia. And then they were headed to Greenland, 
for another two months on the ice. Every gram is too much. <laughs> Don't want it. The Dixie's carefully packing his sled meticulously, one thing at a time. Now look at this. He's joking as a lad. What a chaos. He's hastily throwing his stuff into his sled. Different personalities. <laughs> Dixie's been to the pole before, but even so. The whole thing was just bad, bad, bad. Headwinds, uh, a maze of open water and, and leads. And you really have to work hard to get to that mythical place, which is so volatile. Because as soon as you get there, you're already gone. Yeah. <laughs> With the wind and... Okay, well, today's North Pole Day. So now it's my turn, and my expedition isn't nearly as arduous as theirs. Okay, my sled is a lot lighter. It's pretty obvious where to go and where not to go, right? Yeah. But out there, other than my own breathing, it's, it's utterly quiet. There's a complete and total absence of life. There's no birds. There's no animals, there's no trees, it's just snow and ice. And maybe that's what makes it feel so still. I walked and skied for hours. There's something a little unnerving about the scale. You know, I just feel really small. You know, that's, people say that about being in the mountains. And, but I mean, this is really small and vulnerable. See, this is really not good ice right here. Make myself as light as possible. And, you know, you're alone on the ice. Something a little unnerving when you take a step and these little tiny cracks shoot out. I remember being cold, but I was, I was also really just happy. My brain is working a lot faster than my hands are. The ice and the sky were the same shade of white. I can't see a thing. It was completely flat in all directions. And the horizon is defined only by the blueness of, of the snow drifts, this wind sculpted like meringue. Other than that, everything's white. Okay. Well... I'm standing at the North Pole. Who gets to say that? I'm in the company of dead men with big dreams and extreme adventurers and scientists and complete and total wackos. I am standing right now at the North Pole. The North Pole. Let's see, make sure here. Still right on this spot. That's what the GPS says. 90 degrees. So, this is right this minute, for this very minute anyway, really the top of the world. Okay, well, if I move in any direction, even just a step, I'll be heading south. That's the thing about it. You're never at the pole for very long. You can't be. It's hard to imagine, but the ice I'm standing on is moving four feet a second or more. And so just in the time that it took me to say what I've said so far, 
Let's see. Look at my GPS. The pole's moved. So I'm not at the pole. I'm going <laughs> to over here. Uh, yeah, and it's not that the pole has moved, it's that the ice that I'm standing on has moved. And sometimes you can actually see it as, as these cracks, these tiny little cracks appear. And then they open into the Arctic Ocean, which is only a few feet below where I'm standing. And that's pretty hard to forget, because one minute you're there walking along on top of the ice, and the next, you've fallen through. Legs and feet, you're soaking wet. And it's 40 below. If anything goes wrong, I mean, that nobody can help me. It's like all of a sudden you're in a swimming pool and you look around and there's no edge to swim to, to hang on. Now that's the sense that you get when you're here is that um, it's this feeling that you're not supposed to be here. Somebody said it's a place that wants you dead. That's a little melodramatic, but you gotta be careful. And nature doesn't want you here, and the ice doesn't want you here, and your mom doesn't want you here. <laughs> so why are you here? I don't know, maybe that's part of the pull. You know, maybe you come to uh, defy it. Oh my oh, God. Oh, slight fade. <laughs> oh my yeah! God. These days, of course, with a lot of money, a lot of money, and some cold weather experience, you can get to 90 degrees north pretty easily. Even Borgay Auslin, the guy who called the pole a meditation, he's now guiding short trips to pay for his own expeditions, and there he was hitting a golf ball with his clients who had given up trying to ski there after a couple of days and were airlifted. Hey, Leslie and Christian, it's it's Neil, it's Dad, and uh, I'm calling you from the North Pole. Made it here and uh, heading yeah, back. Yeah, the, the cell phone call and the golf. When I can or when I get email service. Surprisingly, it didn't take away at all from what I had done to get there. Okay, I can't feel my face anymore, and I can't feel my feet, so I think my time to get right on top of it again. You know, I wasn't a first. I wasn't the first to do anything or be anything at the pole. And yet for me, you have the same urge and you've done the same thing that so many other sort of crazy people, for their own reasons, have been there and probably thought some of the same things that you're thinking. So there's a connection. And that was enough. I'm standing on the North Pole. stand here much longer because I gotta move otherwise we'll be standing in this spot for a long time I just want to kind of savor this Elizabeth Arnold, who lives at 61 degrees north in Anchorage, Alaska. More stories from the heart of the land coming up. Okay, so that was pretty self-indulgent, wasn't it? 
um, I was just writing down all the different um, th things that I was on tape, and and uh, I was afraid. I was self-deprecating. I was in awe. I was confessional. I was uh, tentative. Um, my nose was dripping. <laughs> I fell. Uh, I don't know if you heard it at one point, but actually, when I was falling, there was a, definitely a little uh, little tears happening there, and. Um, I was reflective and uh, joked with myself. And, you know, maybe part of it is when you're at the pole, there's nobody else to talk to, so it's easier to just kind of talk to yourself. But, um, I mean, all those things, I, I don't know that I would ever... I don't know that I would ever um, set out to do that. Uh, I think it sort of happens when you're out in the field. Um, I don't know. I didn't have much planned. Um, it was more um, just sort of... Um, trying a lot of different things, um, seeing what worked and what didn't. And I came back with a lot of tape of myself, which is, was really hard to listen to, um, and it was good to have somebody else listen to it. Um, I think these pieces, though, uh, wor work um, sometimes and sometimes don't. I was just in Mexico and um, working on a story there about uh, wind turbines and birds and... Um, um, uh, a resistance there, um, and it's a very, um, it's a very emotional, um, good guys, bad guys kind of story, and uh, and the, and there is no sound. The wind turbines don't make much sound, and even though there's this huge migration of raptors that goes overhead every year, and I was there for it, they don't make a sound either. Um, and as best I could, I got people sort of reacting to it, but I just I was down there and. Um, I thought, oh my God, I don't have any tape. What am I? How am I going to tell this story? And so I tried to do a stand-up at one of these wind turbines. And even though all I was saying was, um, I'm standing under this giant wind turbine, and you know it's huge, it's towering above me, and um, these campesinos live just you know 20 yards from here, and they're looking. Everything I said, um, you could interpret it that I had a point of view in the story. And this was kind of a story, is a kind of story that I really. I need to be as fair and objective as possible. And so the stand-up thing just didn't work. Um, you know, maybe I'll resurrect it, but I think for some pieces it just doesn't work at all. And um, you have to be very careful to not be intimate and not um, show your feelings. And then other pieces like this one just, um, I think it worked, it, it works for it. Um, so I, I think there's a time for it and, and a place for it, and I'm still working that out. And I think a lot of people are still working that out. Um, but as I said before, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I think that it, it does make your stories uh, more immediate and more intimate. And, um, and it allows you to distill moments. And I think that's in more and more um, when you're dealing with the issue of time, distilling time is, is great. I, I just wanted to tell you one of the very first times I ever actually heard somebody or saw somebody doing this was, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, it was Krollwich, and he was doing a piece about gold mines. It was, yeah, it was a TV piece, and he was standing there at this huge gold mine with the mine operator, and these giant trucks were going by, you know, those huge, huge gold mine trucks, Herks or Ukes or whatever they call them, just giant. And it was kind of a boring story, blah, 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 if you can believe that for Krollwich, but all of a sudden he turned to the guy and he said, um... How about my ring? How about this wedding ring right here? And the guy's like, what? He goes, well, how many of those trucks? 
of dirt and gold would be to make this ring. And the guy said, like, 137. And just in that, in that five seconds, it was the whole piece. And I thought, wow, you know, I really want to do that. And I haven't come close to doing that. I mean, I've been trying to do that forever. But I think, I think these moments, you know, I think if, if, if I work hard enough, maybe I'll get a moment like that. And it takes um, a little bit of risk and a little bit of putting yourself out there and, and being really embarrassed, which I, I was as you guys were listening to the North Pole story. <laughs> I couldn't even look up. Anyway, enough about me. Um, it, I, I, probably many of you have done this a lot longer than I have, so, but if anyone has any questions, I'd, I'd rather sort of do that than ramble on. Sure. So you said that, um, that you're using stand-ups in environments where there is often little or no sound, but it sounds like in two of your, especially in two of your examples, you're, you're using a very powerful use of sound, I think, to use an airplane to describe the vast, you know, the, a departing airplane to describe the vastness of a place, or even your boots and the crunching of snow was a very powerful part, I think, or to me at least, listening to it, of the, of, you know, the, of the element of the description, the sort of sense of being there. Do you, do you put a lot of thought into that as you're, as you're putting together your stand-up, sort of, of the few options I have, what are my sound elements that I can incorporate? You know, I mean, it's, just, it's desperation is really what it is a lot. I mean, I do a lot of stuff in the Arctic, and the Arctic is one quiet place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your best... I don't know how many times I... I was thinking this in Mexico, because, of course, I'm doing a story about wind there. So many times, my best sound is wind. And, you know, if, as everyone knows, that's, like, the biggest pain-in-the-neck thing to ever have to record. Um, so, it's you know, it's usually... I don't have much to go with. Um, and I try not to do too much tramping around, because that becomes really cliche as well. Um, and, I, you know, with that bear piece, the very first piece, little piece I played... It was like there was the, you know, the rushing river and the eagle. And, you know, sound just starts to get really cliche. Um, so I, 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 that's why I sort of feel like it's, a, um, it's a, a new option. It's an alternative. But, uh, yeah, I, I think about sound all the time. And, but generally in a desperate way. I go, oh, my God, I'm going to Mexico. It's going to be really windy. You're not going to hear the birds. You know, I don't know how many times I've tried to do the turbines, and you, it, they don't sound like turbines, you know. I mean, windmills should sound like whoosh, 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 and then they just don't, right? Or, or crunching snow should sound really cool, and it usually sounds like someone's eating cornflakes, right? So, I mean, it's, I kind of just uh, go with what I have and try to mic just about everything, um, just leave the mic on all the time. Yeah? Do you think maybe that this sort of approach feels more appropriate now? Because so much of what we're doing is heard on head, uh, heard on earphones, as opposed to a radio broadcast into a room in which the person on the radio is speaking to many, maybe many people. But now we're assuming, like that was a podcast, we're assuming a lot of iPod use and even on computers, headphones. So there's this feeling that when you're speaking from yourself, you're speaking to one other person at a time. So maybe that intimacy <coughs> makes more sense because you are now one-on-one. Do you think that that's part of the reason why it's feeling more appropriate now? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, Because people are listening in a different way. We're not broadcasting, trying to get the attention of everybody in the room. Yeah, I I think that's true. I also think for me, um, there's no way I could have done this 15 years ago. I I think I'm at a point where I feel like... um, I'm a little bit more comfortable, and enough people have heard stuff I've done in the past that they don't think I'm some, you know, 
Yehu out there. And um, so I think for me, it's been a, you know, a maturing as well. I don't, I don't think I'd have the confidence to do it. Um, but I, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, I, but I never really, I don't picture people listening to me. Do you know? I don't go, oh yeah, okay, this will be good because it'll be intimate and, you know, someone's going to have their headphones on in the subway or whatever. I, I don't really do that. Um, but I think, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Hi. Hi. You said you had some ethical concerns yeah. or issues about this. Can you describe what some of those are and like what are some of the real gray areas you've had to grapple with? Yeah, I think it's the what I was trying to explain with this Mexico piece. I think that there's a time and a place for me um, to be uh, me. Um, and then if somebody's listening to me talking about just the size of these... So here's the story in Mexico, I might as well just tell you. So the Mexican government, the, the narrowest part of Mexico, the Isthmus, it's only 125 miles wide. And the Mexican government has a couple hundred wind turbines there. And they're planning, with the help of a lot of multinational corporations and the United States, to put um, another 6,000 up. And it's also the largest migration corridor in the world for raptors. And and also in the process of putting these 6,000 up, they're paying the people who live there like six pesos a month for the use of the land. So it's, you know, it's a pretty um, emotional story. It's a pretty, um, it's not a story that, when I was standing there trying to do the stand-up with the windmills, just saying that the windmills were big sounded like I had a pretty serious point of view about whether the Mexican government should be putting up windmills or not. And I just feel like you got to be really careful with that. But that's not unique to doing a stand-up, is it? Um, well, no, I mean, it depends on how you write, but I think, I, I think it's the intimacy part. I think it's the, the um, I'm sharing, like, my feelings with you. And, and in a regular, you know, boring story like I normally do, I'm not sharing you know, I'm not sharing how I feel about wind energy or raptors or anything else. Uh, I might share, you know, a reaction, but, but um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a story by story. I'm going to have to just approach this. Um, I mean, even the wilderness story, I was a little nervous that I was sounding, you know, pretty, I love the wilderness, and I don't know that I should be sounding that way. Was there anything you wanted to put into a piece that an editor said, no, you can't do that? Oh, boy. Um, that's a good one. Um, not for ethical reasons, probably more for, um, it was, you know, something I was trying that was too much fun. <laughs> you know, you know, are there any editors in the room? I don't want to go down. Oh, hi. <laughs> Um, you know, just the dumb stuff like flushing the toilet on a cruise ship to get the point across with all the crap that's going in the water, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, but not, not, not me stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, I don't, didn't do a very good job, job answering your questions. I mean, I'd be interested in, in what people here have to say about the whole ethical question of it or not. You know, I think it really comes down to whether you're enhancing the piece or not. Uh, I had two questions. One is, uh, what what's the travel guide you go with when you travel? <laughs> Do you use rough guide? I like rough guide. 
The other question is, uh, what's what's the the line that you draw between going out into the wilderness and um, keeping this idea? You said being a banks a blank slate and trying to be honest, but then uh, knowing enough or doing enough homework so that you know you've researched it enough to to know about it to to do the story. You're not saying you do the research later, but so could you just kind of shake that out for me a bit more on being a blank slate but being informed. Um, first of all, I always get like, um, the, the rough guide or the, the one that's, what is it? The one that's the real cheap one. And, and then I get the real high end one. And then I sort of, I cross reference. Like, so when I went to Mexico, I was like, I had the one that had all the hotels for like two pesos. And then I had all the like fabulous hotels. And then I like went, so I sort of try to find the happy medium. No. Um, but about being prepared when I go out, I mean, I try to research as much as possible, um, but I don't, you know, you know, you, you blow it when you, you know so much and then you want to, you know, you start doing your interview and you start telling the person that you're asking the question what the answer should be. You know, well, I know that, you know, there's going to be 6,000 wind turbines up here and blah, 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 and then you blow it, right? Because then they go, yeah, <laughs> there are, right? So, I mean, there is sort of, you have to sort of, I try to do as much research so that I won't be caught unawares, but I also um, try to, when I'm in the field, just approach it like I don't know what's going on. And, and you know, things happen, things unravel. I mean, this whole Mexico trip, I, I thought I knew what I was getting into, and I did a lot of research, but then I got down there, and it was much more about this resistance and um, these people and more than the birds. So I sort of I never want to know the story. I never want to have the story done in my head before I go. I mean, that's my rule. I don't go, okay, I'm going to talk to this guy, and he's going to lead the piece, and it's going to be like this, and here's the beginning, middle, and end. I never, ever have that. Um, I think that's really a bad um, pitfall because then, then you're just you're filling in the blanks, and it never works. It never sounds that great. Um, I th- so I, I, I'm always – I'm like a little kid. I really am um, when I set out to do a story. I, um, you know, w- with wilderness stuff, I, I know enough to bring good boots and always have my sleeping bag and that kind of thing. But you never know what's going to happen out there. And um, when I go to foreign countries, it's the same thing. You never know what's going to happen. And, it, and you just let the stuff unravel. And um, again, I, th- I think I'm, I, I try not to have a preconceived idea of what the story is going to be or what I'm going to find. And I'm incredibly inarticulate. Have you noticed that? So <laughs> that's part of my problem. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I enjoyed listening to those pieces a lot, and I heard some of them before. But um, <clears throat> so I work with teenagers, and uh, um, I think for, for them, putting themselves in the pieces sometimes can be very good because uh, it it's part of what they have is that they're young and they haven't necessarily seen things and all that stuff before. So that can be good, but. Um, a lot of times the other thing they want to put, say, in their pieces is music, and I'll often say to them, well, you know, the problem with music is kind of like in the movies, when they bring up the violins, it tells you how you're supposed to feel. And I wonder, when you first mentioned the ethics question in the beginning, or towards the beginning, I wondered if that's what you meant, if that you felt like there was kind of like a manipulative quality. I'm not saying that I think there is, but I was wondering if that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm thinking about, and I have that feeling about music. Um, I'm not, I was thinking about that today, because so many of the pieces this morning had music in them, and I thought... That's really powerful. And I thought, you know, I could do that. And then I thought, no, I can't. 
there's no way because it, it would feel that way to me and I would and I think as a listener I would feel like oh I'm supposed to feel bad sad for the raptors now that they're you know getting chopped up by the windmills because you're gonna have that music or something so yeah I, I think that's I think that's that's a, a really good point because um, I think because we are so so visual sometimes too. I think um, we we see movies and TV and all that. I think that it, the music just evokes something right there. It's like an image, and then you then you you're not listening to the piece. You're you're someplace else. You're yeah. I I would agree. Yeah. A uh, little observation and a question. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. Well, I wonder if we if we wring our hands a little bit too much about this at times because to me in some ways it's not so different than the usual because we are in our pieces almost every piece when we write script and so I feel like a lot of the things we wring our hands about with stand-ups either we should be wringing our hands about them when we write too or we should not worry so much about them in either case and so along those lines my question is has starting to do this influenced the way that you write at all? Oh yeah that's a really good question because I, I, I don't know if you noticed in the last piece you know there's one thing about you doing stand-ups out there but What's also changed in that last piece was um, the narrative, the stuff I did in the studio. And I love to write. I mean, I love to write. And I think my, you know, I just, that's my favorite part, one of my favorite parts. And in the narrative, I did it, I had a script. And then, um, and in fact, I did a piece with the script like that. And then um, I was asked to just sort of, depart from the script and just sort of vamp instead. Um, so instead of reading it, just sort of talk it through. And um, that was really, really different for me. And at first I was like, well, I don't want to do that because I worked so hard at crafting these words and these sentences and I don't lose that. That's like the best part. Like, that's the part my mom likes. You know, that's the part where I sound smart and, and eloquent. Um, but I think in the North Pole piece, it really works because – it sounds more like I'm telling you the story and then I'm just referencing a moment and then bam, you're in that moment and then you're back. And when it's all scripted out, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have that feel to it. And that was a huge step for me. Um, that's uh, very, very different. And uh, so I'm sort of wringing my hands over it, but um, kind of letting go a little bit, I, I think um, is another new challenge and I'm, it's kind of fun to try. I'd suggest trying it. And it's great to have somebody in your headphones asking you questions. Um, that's what um, Emily did. She, she, I would, you know, read the script or something, and she'd say, did you, re- did you really feel like that? I mean, and, and I was like, well, yeah, I did, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then that's what we used instead of the scripted part. Um, I've noticed, at least I think I've noticed, a lot more stand-ups in traditional NPR pieces. You know, and what I've noticed is somebody saying, you know, I'm standing on the beach and da, 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 da. and I have to ask myself, why are they doing this? Like, it, it's just narrative. And I feel like there's a push towards maybe trying to play with it more. But for me, I don't know if it's I'm used to the other or it's not nearly, it's usually not as eloquent as they would if they had written it. So I don't see a lot of point to that. But that's what I'm hearing a lot of. The stuff that is exciting is like you falling in the ice. <laughs> you know, when something actually happens that you can't describe in narrative. So I wonder, and, and I'm just beginning now to do daily um, 
you know, being a regular reporter at a NPR affiliate station. So it's a question for me of, you know, what are the opportunities and how do I want to play with this? Um, but I wanted to know what your take on that in terms of, because a lot of your pieces are, you know, it's about you exploring this place that nobody else is. But for a more traditional piece, um, what's your take on that? And I don't know what you've been hearing. Yeah. Well, no, believe me, I don't do these pieces all the time. These, you know, these, my standard fare is pretty boring stuff. Um, I don't get to do fun stuff like this all the time. And I think you're right. I think, especially the science desk at NPR, uh, more and more they're trying to do like, well, I'm here, blah, 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 blah. And I think you got to go, is there a point to this? Is there a reason to do this or not? And if if you're just doing it to be trendy and new and try something out, and it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and, there, and there's no point in doing it. I mean, I remember Danny's Wordling was the first reporter at NPR to say I on the air, and everyone was like, oh, my God, I was aghast. And, and we all wrung our hands about it, and everyone had, you know, their different opinions of it. But in the end, it was, is it enhancing the piece or not? Is there a reason to do it or not? Sometimes you can't even, you can't, it's very difficult not to say I in a situation that you're writing about. But by and large, you can get around it. And, and I think that, that's, that's the judgment call you have to make. Is this enhancing the piece? Is there a reason for me to be saying I'm standing here at this wind turbine or not? Is that, am I just doing it because I'm self-indulgent and I want to try something trendy? Or is it, is, there, is it a compelling moment? Is it making the story come alive? Is, it, is, it, um, is, it, is there a reason for it? I mean, I think that's the guideline, or at least... For me now, it is. Does that help? Sort of? Kind of? Okay. Hi, I have sort of a technical story construction question for you. I work in Alaska as well. And some of the editors with whom I work get a little freaked out when you... Editors freaking out? (laughs) Just a little bit. They sort of freak out when you put your studio voice back-to-back with your field voice, your on-site voice. Um, And I noticed you did that several times in your stories. Have you ever met resistance from editors saying, like, "Uh, you don't want to have the two voices back-to-back, listeners will get confused? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you just said, I'm doing it anyway. Uh, you know, I wasn't even sure about it. Um, you know, because you have this sort of whiplash effect, right? I mean, oh, is she the, is she the one on the ice or is she the one in the studio? or is she, which, which one is she? You know, which Elizabeth is it now? Um, and I don't know. I, well, I, I'd be interested if you, was it, when I, was that confusing to you? Not for me. Okay. No. Yeah. But my editors might have been. <laughs> Duncan, um, <laughs> you know, I think it depends on how you cut it and ha- whether it works or not. But um, you know, you just just you gotta stand up for what you. If you think it works, then you know you tell them that it works and and, and fight them on it. I, I mean, that's kind of probably shouldn't be saying that, but that's how I feel about it. Um, you know, th- there's a lot just. Dumb moments, word choices. I mean, I fight with editors all the time about just the use of a word. I mean, I used a word in a story recently, um, snag. You know, a snag. I'm sure a lot of you know what it is. Maybe you don't. Maybe the editor was right. But it's a tree that doesn't have any limbs on it anymore. It's been hit by lightning or whatever, and it's a snag. And it's a great word. I love it. And I used it in a sentence that, that you understood what it meant. But, you know wasn't happening. I mean, this editor was not going to let me say snag on the air. Um, but then I fought really hard for it. I mean, it's a stupid thing to fight for. But, you know, if you, if you think the back-to-back works, then you fight for it. 
Um, I have two observations. One is, I think it's kind of funny that you're fretting over the fact that you're putting yourself, that this is risky, that you're putting yourself in, this, in the pieces, when the very pieces you do are riskier than most of us would ever even contemplate doing. Oh, you mean like danger factor? Like, yeah, oh. like being with bears and going to the North Pole, and, you know. <laughs> it's an incredible sense of adventure, and that's to me, is the risky part. Um, the other part of it is, is that I, too, work with kids a lot. I don't know who said that. Um, and, it, and I think that the putting yourself in is a generational thing. I think that, that I grew up with, no, 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 you have, to have, you have to have some distance from whatever you're talking about. But kids today grow up wanting to tell everything about themselves. And it's all over the place. It's on MySpace. It's on Facebook. It's all them, them, them and they share everything with each other. So it really depends on who's listening. If your mom's listening, she's probably not going to like it. Self-indulgent. But, um, <laughs> but if my kids are listening, they'll probably love it. So it's kind of depends on where thing, who's listening to the piece. That's a good point. So do you think somewhere in the future the pendulum will swing back and those kids will be trying something really new by taking themselves out of the piece? <laughs> 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 right, and they'll have like sessions like this, taking yourself out of the piece. <laughs> it's risky. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm just making fun. I I um I think that's a really good point. A really good point. I think the place I found myself doing this sort of stand up one, you know, person telling what's going on is and we see it a lot as the hurricane coverage. Mm. You know, we see it with uh, you know, the weathermen out there. Holding on to the trees. Exactly. They, they do with that. Um I was quite impressed that you seem to not have any cliches in speaking. I often hear people say, right now, I'm standing here. Well, here on the radio doesn't really mean much to us, and right now doesn't mean anything either. Have you had to train yourself to sort of speak in a way that... that tra- There's a lot of honesty coming out, and I'm not hearing a lot of cliches, and it's quite impressive. Well, I would take that as a compliment. Um... There are a lot of ums. I don't, I don't think I think about that too much. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think as a reporter, you, you think about it all the time because you think about it with the people that you're interviewing. You want to make sure that they don't say, you know, like I said to you before 10 times, or, or well, yeah, that did happen yesterday. You know what I mean? And so I think, I think in terms of, of the now, um, but I, I don't have any, I don't think I have any rules. I, again, when you do the stand-ups, it's really important to do a lot of them because um, you, you, you know, inadvertently would say something like that and you wouldn't want to use that one. Um, that the, the stand-up, though, that I did, the first one I ever did, the one um, where the plane was leaving, I only had one shot at that. Um, so, fortunately that so fortunately, I didn't say something really stupid and, and not be able to use it. But um, I, I don't think I have any... Uh, I, don't, I don't think that I think about those things. Although... I'm sure there are ones that I've weeded out because I said something stupid. Um, yeah. This is slightly off topic, but maybe not. Good. I'm not entirely sure. Um, editing and editors. I love them. I love them. I take yeah. everything back I said. Well, I, I'm, I mean, the reason I ask is because for the last 15 years I've been working as an editor. And uh, it's there are days when it's a joy. There are days when it's just a giant hemorrhoid of an experience. <laughs> um, 
I just got back in Mexico. But, but I, and, and actually, I, I feel I have a relatively good relationship with my reporters, but I'm amazed at the animosity sometimes uh, that can go on between reporters and uh, editors, even people who are, you know, literally sit six feet apart from one another. And, and, it, and it can become poisonous, even though this is meant to be a relationship that is meant to, I suppose, ultimately help the listening audience, but it's it's meant to be a constructive environment, and and then we get into the conversation of the relationship between national public radio editors and people working at within the system stations. Yeah. yeah, and there are there are just being sloppy love fests, and there are, I mean there are I suppose some radio stations where some editors feel they couldn't walk into safely, <laughs> and um, and and it really amazes me actually that in some ways that this happens still because it is meant to be a constructive relationship but somehow we have allowed ourselves to let it get poisoned and once it gets poisoned what do we do to get out of that poisonous experience because the the one thing I know about public radio people is we have memories like elephants <laughs> um, there's that joke about I'm from Scotland you know this uh, Scottish uh, uh, Alzheimer's where you forget everything except the grudges and I think it's very it's true of uh, public radio too because I remember back in 1983 he said and so and I'm just curious I mean you've been around the system for a while and I'm just intrigued as to your thoughts about that. Yeah, and I, I, I hope you all know that I'm joking when I was saying the th- things I was saying about editors because, honestly, I couldn't do what I do without them. And the best editors are the, are the ones that um, they're not – you know they're not going to let you fall off the cliff. But you, so you really trust them. So you try new stuff because you know they're not going to – let it happen unless it really works, and and you're not going to take those risks if you think. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, the best editors you just have this great trust relationship with, um, and it is a collaborative process. And and you know, I love the editing process. And um, I, you know, when I was talking about fight for things, well, yeah, you fight for things, but you don't have to fight for things. I'm actually a pretty easy edit. Um, you could probably ask anybody. I, I love it when 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 an editor wants to talk to me about different you know i just i love the writing process so i love the editing process i love sharing it with with someone else and um but i had a a time when i I think it's a two-way street i think there are editors who are problems and i think there are are reporters who are problems it's not oh the editors are bad or the reporters are bad because i was an editor for a brief stint and i I never want to do it again um and i had an argument with a, a reporter who he strung a bunch of 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 adjectives together to describe David Dinkins when he was running for mayor and it was like you know I don't, it was all these adjectives there must have been seven adjectives and one of them was avuncular and I said you know let's like lose one adjective how about avuncular oh my god I mean it was World War Three. I couldn't and I it was it was such an eye-opener for me because I thought I never do this as a reporter oh my god I mean this guy thought tooth and nail for avuncular I mean just and and it was, like I said, it was an eye-opening experience for me because I usually go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I mean, I've had editors who, who just say, well, nuke this, nuke that, nuke that, nuke that, you know. And, and um, sometimes I just go, okay, right, 
and you know sometimes I fight for things, but not not to the extent that I guess other reporters do. So I I, I don't think it's one side or the other, and I, I think that um, there are great editors, there are great reporters, and there are great teams, and there's great collaborators, and you know it's it's up to the individuals. Um, and and it 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 pains me to think that you think it's getting worse. Do, do you really think it's getting worse? And I mean. Um, no, I think it's getting easy. How about that? I mean, it's. I actually, I think there's been there's been some tremendous improvements in the relationship, uh, particularly uh, with the uh, the bureaus, the bureau chiefs around the the area. But no, I, I'm thinking actually more just with within individual relationships, yeah. not not within between organizations. Yeah. And and it really does. I mean, I've seen these relationships go down south and then you really think well how can this be saved and unfortunately sometimes what it means is, is these people don't work together again yeah and frankly there's only so many of us and eventually yeah. <laughs> we're all going to end up sitting on our own in a little room somewhere i just get quiet i get if, if i feel like somebody's just really over editing me i just get really quiet and then they're like are you still there <laughs> I'm like, yeah okay but i don't usually fight that hard um, I guess to change the topic back again, sorry. Um, I have sort of an observation slash question, which is the idea of when you have a story where you don't feel like it's appropriate to put yourself into it um, because it doesn't feel objective. What do you think about the idea of sort of doing the the straight or the boring story, so to speak, quote unquote, um, and then doing a more personal story that sort of talks about sort of pulling back the curtain and talks about your process and why you chose to use the sources that you used or point out the facts that you did because you know at the end of the day it's impossible to create a story I think that's purely objective there's always some sure. other fact some other person um, what do you think about that as a tool for sort of I guess combining the two ideas yeah I mean as Gabe pointed out earlier I mean you know it's a lot of hand-wringing about about um, whether or not you put yourself in the piece but because just by choosing to do a story you're you know you're basically making a pretty subjective decision um, I I I think I'd still be really cautious about that. I like reporter notebooks. Um, I don't like reporter notebooks if if it's uh, oh well the reason the reason I um, chose to do this is because the multinationals are screwing the Mexicans. I mean, I you know I wouldn't do that, but I I um, I do love to do the straight piece and then do a reporter's notebook that sort of. Um, isn't necessarily about anything big, but it 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 distil- distills the the story and and adds a little um, a little more, um, you know, it, it, to do a story about. Um, so I do the piece, I do it pretty straight, and then I might do a story about, you know, one guy who lives a uh, hundred yards from a wind turbine and and what it's like. I mean, what it's like for him. In in, but again, you'd have to be careful in how you told that story. I mean, just like any other story. Um, but I I do think. Um, I love sort of the peeling back kind of story. I mean, pe- people, <laughs> it's it's sort of like giving speeches. Sometimes you you say, okay, I had this prepared script, and now I'm gonna throw it away, and I'm gonna tell you the really good stuff. And when I was a political reporter, and I would go, around, people always wanted the you know the the hidden stuff, the stuff they didn't really hear, and you'd tell them the same thing that you'd broadcast the night before, but you'd just tell it in a different voice, and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm really getting the good stuff. I mean. <laughs> People want the story behind the story, and you know, generally, it's just the story, right? But but I, you know, the, when they say now we're gonna have a reporter's notebook, usually you kind of go, oh, 
this is going to be something different and something real and interesting. So, yeah, I love those things. This is a question maybe about process and probably different for everyone, but when you say you take, you do a lot of different takes and you do a lot of stand-ups, are you talking about the same thing over and over and just trying to find the best way to say it, or are you finding new things to say? Um, I'm not saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, I'm just sort of uh, moving around. Um, you know, I, I tried probably eight different times to... to get to talk about how the ice is moving you know so i'm standing out there and ice is clearly moving and i'm saying well how 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 can i talk about this so i say you know i'm standing here and the ice is moving x amount of um distance over a certain amount of minutes or i say you know the, then i try it a different way well I, I wanted really in this in the pole piece i had went to sleep and i was i was um wakened woke Anyway, I was jolted awake um, because the ice had moved a lot under, underneath me where I was sleeping. And it was just like really unnerving. It was like, you know, when you have an earthquake and you just kind of feel a little bit, it was like huge like that. And I, and I woke up and I went, oh, wow, that was huge. And I wanted to talk and I thought that that would work. So I was doing a stand up. I was saying, and, you know, last night. And then I was like, no, you can't say last night because it's, it's never night. So that's sort of wrong. And then I said, well, uh, I tried another way, and I said, you know, um, while I was sleeping a few hours ago, I was jolted awake. I tried about seven different times to do it, and none of it worked. It just, it, it, I, I think it's because it took me out of the moment. It, I was talking about something that had happened um, a few hours earlier, and it just didn't work. So I tried to try about you know, a bunch of different ways to do something, but not you know, the same thing over and over again. And generally, if it's not working, I make fun of myself out loud and, and laugh and then move on. And that helps <laughs> for me anyway. Anybody else? Okay. Well, thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. <laughs>